We've all seen pictures of workers dressed in special gear because they're dealing with the hazardous nature of their jobs. Workplace safety has become an important issue in America, and you might be surprised at some of the occupations where people face chemical exposure. Take, for example, workers at a microwave popcorn industry plant who developed a form of lung disease. Hi, I'm Bob Long. Welcome to Stats and Stories, a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our focus today is on workplace safety issues. Joining me on Stats and Stories are our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Before we talk to our special guest about workplace hazards, Stats and Stories reporter Bethany Miller talked with one scientist who's involved in studies of workplace hazards. The workplace can be hazardous for some employees, risk of exposure to cancer-causing chemicals, or other safety-related issues. Federal agencies like the National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health try to identify potential workplace hazards and help to craft rules to safeguard workers. Leslie Stainer spent 23 years at NIOSH doing studies to identify potential hazards and determine how much risk is involved. Regulators at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration rely on scientists to tell them the risks that certain chemicals pose. Stainer says these studies help determine how federal rules can safeguard workers. We're involved in a number of um, important issues. We're involved in OSHA standards, testimony on, uh, for cadmium, silica, extensive work on coal dust and noise and hearing loss, a large number of other issues. For example, Stainer was involved in studies of workers exposed to cadmium and found the risks were unacceptably high. The workers we studied and did our, our uh, risk assessment on were, were workers that worked in, with cadmium that had been refined. But the results from our risk assessment were generalized to all workers who are exposed to cadmium. Stainer says sometimes studies of workplace risks extend beyond America's borders. He points to work he was involved with regarding the dangers of formaldehyde. The research that I did on formaldehyde, along with others at NIOSH and others at NCI, were, were highly influential in the determination by the International Agency for Research on Cancer that formaldehyde is a known human carcinogen. And that has very wide implications, not only for regulation here in the, in the United States, but worldwide. Leslie Stainer says assessing risks in the workplace is no easy task. It could take three to five years to determine if a chemical causes cancer and another year to assess what level of exposure is considered unsafe. Stainer says developing federal rules can take much longer. The burden of OSHA and the EPA to uh, set regulations, they have to go through all kinds of reviews within, within the government and also with external forces. So these regulatory processes can drag on for years. Leslie Stainer now does research at the University of Illinois Chicago on issues involving water contamination. For Stats and Stories, I'm Bethany Miller. Our special guest today is Chris whitaker Sachi. She's the chief of the Risk Evaluation Branch at NIOSH. That's the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Chris has worked at NIOSH for a decade, and she leads a team that conducts risk assessments for workplace hazards such as chemical exposure. Hi, well, I'm happy to be here today and um, talk about what is going on at NIOSH. We um, look at chemical exposures in the workplace by looking at both studies of workers um, in the workplace 
epidemiological studies, and also we look at animal studies of toxic substances. And then we use that data to um, extrapolate to what exposures would be safe or safer for workers that are exposed to different kinds of chemicals in the workplace. So how do you use some of the, the data that you've collected there to, to try to establish some of these ex exposure levels? Well, um, we used to do a very simple analysis and look for what levels didn't show an ex uh, uh, elevated health effect. For example, if we're looking for cancer in, a, in an animal study, we'd look for the dose that didn't produce any cancer in the animals. And then we would extra use uncertainty factors or safety factors to predict what um, would be safe for humans. And nowadays we'd get a little bit more sophisticated and do some statistical modeling to use all of the data that's in an uh, animal study to predict what levels are, are safe for, for human exposure and, and especially workers. So, so you know, you know, I love to hear words like statistical modeling and then describing <laughs> sort of work, even even though it makes most of my colleagues uncomfortable here at the table. So, you know, when you think about some of these models, what what kind of models do you just do you mean? I mean, what what does that mean in this context? Well, it's looking at the exposure response um, data. So we're looking at how much or what concentrations of um, a chemical in an environment will produce a health effect in. Um, the animals in this case. And, and so we look at that at different doses. So if we have low doses, medium doses, and high doses, how does the number of health effects we observe change over that range? And we can use that to then um, basically draw a picture of what the exposure and response looks like and um, at low levels. And that's hopefully where the workers are exposed at low levels. I'm kind of curious because I know you're you're dealing pretty much with the research that goes into all this, but then uh, there have to be other agencies, I'm sure, that are involved in actually implementing the guidelines. I wanted to maybe have you explain how that how that whole process works. We do the research and we produce we actually produce recommendations, and um, those come out in the form of recommended exposure limits, and then um, other agencies look at it and make regulations and this uh, the uh, for worker health that would be OSHA or the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and I used to work for OSHA as well early in my career and what they do is they develop regulations about how much an employer has to keep the um, exposures what levels the exposure ha has to be kept at to uh, keep workers healthy I'm just kind of curious too how long uh, a lot of times from the time you first find out about something till the time uh, a regulation is actually implemented. We're, we're talking several years, aren't we, a lot of times before that actually takes place? Yeah, it can be many years because um, we have, like for the example that you used in the opening um, statement, uh, uh, which is uh, popcorn uh, manufacturing. So there, this is a food production plant, and people don't think of chemical exposures in the food. And actually, the chemical that is responsible for the lung disease that was found in workers is called diacetyl. And that is actually butter flavor. And it's the natural butter flavor that we find in our sticks of butter in the refrigerator at home. But when you concentrate it to put it into bags of uh, 
um, microwave popcorn. They're heating it up and workers are inhaling it and it's at a much higher concentration than you would have from frying up some butter at home. So um, that concentrated of, a, of an exposure would lead to um, health effects and, and decreased lung function and, and actually a, a very horrible lung disease um, in, in workers. John Baylor, I'll yeah. go to you next. Just a quick follow-up on that. So, so how did the idea of, of this, this example, this diacetyl, how did that come to the attention for any kind of action? Well, um, actually, back in 1984 was the first documented um, uh, case of, and the, the disease is horrible. It's called bronchiolitis obliterans, and um, it sounds basically as horrible as it is. And the only treatment for it, once you have it, is a lung transplant. So it's it's very ser- serious disease, and it's um, people have died from this. So back in 1984, uh, an occupational physician found these um, ca- a couple of cases of this in a microwave pop- popcorn plant. And, but they didn't know what was causing it. They didn't know um, what was going on with, with uh, the workers there. So then um, in, the, in the late 90s, um, more cases of bronchiolitis obliterans started popping up and occupational physicians started to, to notice this. And in the year 2000, NIOSH actually did some health hazard evaluations where they went out to the works, work sites of several uh, microwave popcorn plants and they evaluated the workers, they measured their lung function, and um, they measured the exposures of different chemicals because at that time they didn't know what it was related to. And eventually they found the, the relationship between diacetyl exposure and um, this disease or decreased lung function. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and we're discussing the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics, just like the example we gave you. And we're focusing this time on the importance of dealing with chemical exposure in the workplace. I'm Bob Long, and along with me are regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell. And again, our special guest, Chris Whitaker Softy of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. I'm going to go to Richard Campbell uh, for the next question. Chris, one of the things that we are interested in on this show is the way that scientific research and stories about data research gets translated to the public. And a lot of times the role of the, a key role in that process is the role of the journalists explaining Things that are, as Bob has pointed out already, are complicated. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from the author David Halberstam, who says that journalists, the journalist's job is to make the complicated interesting. So sometimes in doing that, things get simplified. So I guess my question to you is um, how – could the media do a better job, the news media do a better job explaining what it is you do? Maybe you can even give us some examples. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it, it is it does get very complicated when you're doing risk assessment because we're talking about statistical models and chemicals with long, complicated names. And um, I, we need a way to make it simpler because basically what we're trying to do is I mean, when people ask me what I r- really do, I say um, that our job is to say that's not safe don't breathe that and you know we, it gets a little bit more complicated because we're trying to tell people 
how much not to breathe or how much an employer needs to keep the levels at to to, um, to make it safe. So um, I think understanding the chemistry behind things or understanding the statistics would be helpful, but I, it's, be, it's being able to explain kind of what the goal is, and that is to protect workers. And I think that would be um, helpful. Okay, thank you. One of the things we always like to do, too, is find out what people on the street know about our particular subject. So one of the things we asked them for today was, what kind of workers do you think face the risk of chemical exposure in the workplace? I think people who work outside a lot, so like construction workers, maybe people who do a lot of landscaping with fertilizers, um, and also maybe people in the medical field who have to deal with a lot of chemicals and medications and things like that. Any type of construction worker, people that paint, like contractors, things like that, they're just around different like dust particles that can be dangerous. Painters, obviously, the fumes from the paint. Science or like researching, you are exposed to a lot of different like hazardous materials, areas like chemists and scientists and things like that. People who work at a garbage disposal place because they have to use a lot of chemicals to keep the smell down. Probably anyone in the medical profession or like custodial workers dealing with cleaning up messes or strong chemicals there or anyone working like agriculture. Chris, maybe we'll have you address that issue too, because I imagine there's a wide range of types of cases, like Richard and you know brought up things where, and John also that uh, examples of types of things. So maybe if you could give us an idea of the range of kinds of things that NIOSH has investigated over the years, the types of jobs. Yeah, for for chemical exposures, we've had um, all sorts of uh, kinds of occup- occupations that, on the face of it, you don't think of as chemical exposures. For example, you know the example I used earlier of the um, pop corn worker that's the food food preparation well diacetyl is also found in all sorts of food preparation including candy making and coffee grinding and um, uh, all you know all sorts of, of things diacetyl is a very nice flavoring and it goes in a lot of products so um, there's lots of chemical exposure in food manufacturing that we don't think of as chemical exposures there's also hospital workers are exposed to tons of different kinds of chemicals and anybody who's involved in cleaning um, cleaning all sorts of cleaning products are chemical exposures and office workers can be exposed to things like printer toner and um, things like that there's all sorts of jobs um, have different kinds of chemical exposures. And then there's, of course, if you're working a chemical plant or a, a manufacturing where you're looking at metal working fluids or something like that, almost every job has some sort of chemical exposures with the exception of probably college professors. <laughs> with that, we'll go to what college professor John Baylor for the next question. Yeah, yeah our, our exposures tend to be th- to things to other things like stress. There's, so, there's, so, so certainly there are other there are other uh, exposures that you worry about. So you've given us a, a number of examples that relate to to chemicals in the workplace or in a diversity of different types of workplaces that have chemical exposure. But can you talk about some of the other populations and perhaps some of the other types of exposures that are non-chemical that could be thought of as hazards in, in the workplace? Yeah, the, the other kinds of um, work that we do, we, tr- we try to prevent, uh, as NIOSH, a larger NIOSH, we try to prevent um, worker injury and illness of all types. So that can be uh, either falling off of a roof or, um, you know, 
uh, stress in college professors, or um, it could be, uh, so we look at firefighters, we look at um, jockeys, or uh, uh, football players, or uh, waitresses, or hairdressers. Um, uh, we've, we had a really interesting um, example not too long ago about how some uh, hairdressers were exposed to formaldehyde in the salon. And things that people don't think of as, as real chemical exposures, are they're, they're everywhere. Well, one of the things that I'm interested in is some of those things that you were just talking about how what kind of outreach do you do to to make sure the public and these worker groups know what's going on and how much pushback is there when they feel like they haven't had this explained to them fully i can imagine there are some workers that just say oh that's silly i feel fine are are there things that you've been involved in where you felt like you know th- this is a good story people need to know about this and somehow we're not getting anyone's attention yeah m- my Research is usually, or my work is usually at the, you know, kind of creating the science end of things and not so much in the, in the outreach. But NIOSH does have a big outreach um, program that they are looking at. And their target audience is usually employers because employers are supposed to be the ones who keep their employees safe. So they're supposed to put things in place that, that protect workers. And um, so we do some direct uh outreach to workers and you're right we get mixed results with that we have um, some studies where we're looking at say iron workers who are um, and trying to prevent falls because iron work is one of the most hazardous occupations in the in the country and they're also the falls or near falls are very unreported because Mm -hmm. there's you know an element of pride in the job and you don't want to admit that you know you've uh, that you've had an incident so so this this sort of uh trying to get at that psychology and get to um to the iron workers and or to any occupation and really put it in terms that are meaningful to them it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a whole issue and there is pushback on on things because people get familiar with um what they do every day and they they don't Um, recognize the risks. Yeah, very good. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Again, we're focusing our attention today on the issue of uh, chemical and other types of exposures in the workplace, other hazards. I'm Bob Long, and again, our regular panelist on the show, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Media Journalism and Film Chair Richard Campbell, and our special guest today, uh, Chris Whitaker Softchi from the National Institute of Occupational Safety and health. For our topic today, we also had another question for folks on the street. We wanted to know what kind of health problems they thought of as being caused by inhaling chemicals uh, in the workplace. It could cause like obviously like lung issues and things like that, but then also just like cancer, depending on what type of chemical you're exposed to. I think they face brain damage as with like any lobe of their brain, um, depending on what the chemical is. Also, asthma and um, like any damage to your vocal folds. I'm sure there's risks of heart disease, lung disease, that probably an endless possible list of possibilities. If you inhale them, probably like lung problems might affect breathing or anything that has to do with speaking. 
Or they could also deal with like skin rashes or like problems with skin or brain damage even. If someone has asthma or allergies, that could be a really big problem if there's like unknown chemicals that they're not aware of or health risks that they're not aware of or cancerous causing chemicals. And I kind of wanted to get into that for uh, you as well today, Chris, in terms of um, not just workers, but we also realize that sometimes the air we breathe, there can be problems. Is that something, again, NIOSH uh, has done a lot of research on as well? Yeah, um, and it, the, the kinds of health effects that you could have from inhaling chemical um, hazards are range anything from cancer, which everybody's worried about, to um, irritation, and it could be some uh, neurological issues. We could have... Um, uh, reproductive hazards, They're everything you could think of, every system of the body that can fail, if you inhale it, a chemical that has that those effects, um, you could have problems with those. So um, like one way to think about it, we have uh, a chemical called 1-bromopropane, which is a uh, solvent. And in dry cleaning, you Typically, the typical dry cleaner uses perchloroethylene, which you, that gives that dry cleaning smell mm-hmm. when yes, you bring your work. clothes home. Mm-hmm. And um, but perchloroethylene gets into groundwater and is an environmental hazard. So companies have started replacing uh, perchloroethylene with one bromopropane in their shops, and that's much more environmentally friendly because it doesn't get into the groundwater and and have all those problems. But the problem is that 1-bromopropane is a neurotoxin, a reproductive toxin, and, and it causes cancer. And we've had some uh, incidents where dry cleaners that have switched over their shop to 1-bromopropane have ended up in the emergency room with tremors and problems walking and things like that. And, you know, we really don't want to see that. So when we're trying to work with EPA and others that are worried about the environment and make sure that when you're moving... F- from an environmentally hazardous chemical to uh, another chemical that's more environmentally friendly, you're also considering the worker as part of the environment. John Baylor, go to you. Just as a, as a follow-up to this, you know, you've, you're describing replacing something that's, that's known to be bad in one context with something that, that you think is not going to be so bad. So, so this is something that there has to have been a decision made in the absence of, of perfect knowledge. Right. So, so there's a decision-making in the face of uncertainty component to what's being described here. So how did – with something like the, the chemical replacement for, to PERC that you described for, for the uh, dry cleaners, how, what was not known or what data were not available that would have, would have helped with, with maybe leading to, to more you – know, a safer exposure level being set in advance? Yeah, and I think that was a, a good example of where the government lags behind – where industry is moving to. Um, and uh, the only information we had about 1-bromopropane at the time, well, we had the to- toxicology studies, but the agencies hadn't uh, set exposure levels um, at that time uh, because 1-bromopropane uh, was actually used, was on the uh, EPA list to replace some ozone-depleting chemicals. So it was used as a substitute for, the, for those chemicals. Now, dry cleaning, perchloroethylene is not one of the, the situations, but when they found out they could use 1-bromopropane, they used um, that there. Um, we, NIOSH is now developing a 
a recommended exposure limit for one bromopropane as part of its um, its program and uh, to to address that problem and because it and EPA is also looking into one one bromopropane because it's a hazardous chemical as well and it just has different effects and because it's marketed for one thing or another it doesn't mean it's it's safe. Richard Campbell, we'll go to you. In the uh, in looking at some of the the history of NIOSH over the years, I know their cancer uh, carcinogen research goes way back. And this is connected sort of with one of the problems that sometimes daily journalists have is sort of any kind of sort of historical memory about over time because we're really good journalists are really good at talking about what happened yesterday and what's happening right now but can you talk about some of the significant changes in carcinogen research and how it affects workers since the mid-70s yeah i I mean in the niosh was created in 1970 and at that time um carcinogen research was just kind of uh, getting full steam ahead. And so that was the number one hazard of concern. You had um, at the Food and Drug Administration, they were dealing with the uh, Delaney Clause, which prohibited carcinogens in the food and, and, um, or had zero tolerance for, for uh, carcinogens in food. And so the agencies wanted to have zero exposure for um, chemicals that cause cancer. And that's a, a reasonable thing to do in the absence of, of knowledge. If in reality, so many chemicals cause cancer in laboratory animals and probably in humans as well, that it's impossible to remove all of them from our environment. So you have to deal with some level of risk. I think our uh, understanding of uh, chemical exposures that that lead to cancer have evolved over the years. So now we're trying to look at what are acceptable levels of um, carcinogens in our air or in our food or in our water. And um, rather than trying to focus on eliminating them all, because that um, seems to be kind of impossible. Thank you. We have time for probably just one or two more questions. So John Baylor, I'll go to you next. Thank you. The issue that, that comes to mind for me is you said they're, they're developing the development of a recommended exposure level is something that's going to be occurring. Can you talk a little bit about s- some of the data and the process of, by which the data are collected, the data are considered, and then somehow integrated in a way to make recommendations for these levels? Yeah. Um, what we do is uh, at NIOSH, sometimes we collect our own epidemiology data. We go out in the field and do the studies in worker populations and measure health effects and measure um, exposures and and get data that way. Uh, but for many chemicals, we don't have um, that level of information. So then we have animal studies that we look at. And if we're really lucky, we have both animal studies and human studies that we can draw on. And so once we collect that data and look at the, what health effects are there, we look at what, um, which type of health effect would be most sensitive, cause the most problems for, for um, an individual. And we look at what concentrations of chemicals cause the uh, health effect and construct a what we call an exposure response curve or you know um, and then we look at the uncertainty around 
that that estimate because if you're estimating something from an animal study, um, you have a different level of confidence than you do uh, from a, a human study. And there are all sorts of other uh, pieces that go in there, but basically that's that's then we take that and we estimate what a human exposure would be, and in this case it would be workers exposed. Um, we assume 40 hours a week for uh, a working lifetime and if we're looking at chronic disease. Now, we can also look at short-term exposures and look for health effects like irritation to the nasal passages and stuff, or we can look at um, all sorts of different levels of exposure. So that's how we do it. Our special guest today has been Chris Whitaker-Sachi of the uh, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, better known as NIOSH, where she is the chief of the risk evaluation branch. I bet people will have a different take on this after today, and I really want to thank you very much for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And if you'd like to share your thoughts about our program, you can send us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll always talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.